This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Matt Davis. Hey all, Matt Davis here. In this episode of Brain Matters, I sat down to chat with Dr. Wendy Suzuki. She is a professor of neuroscience and psychology in the Center for Neuroscience at New York University. We had a great chat about the brain anatomy most implicated in memory formation and retrieval. You guessed it, we spent a great deal of time talking about the hippocampus. However, we went into uh, a more nuanced discussion when, in which we began to talk about the brain areas that eventually feed into the hippocampus, such as the perirenal and postrenal cortex. When investigating the function of a particular brain region, one major question a memory researcher often wonders is if a particular brain region simply passes information along through it, like a relay station, the alternative is that this region adds or modifies the incoming information. Distinguishing between these two possibilities can reveal a ton about how the brain achieves certain outcomes, such as forming a memory. Dr. Suzuki has another line of research that was inspired by a rafting trip. She began to wonder how the intense exercise she experienced during the trip could affect her brain, and in particular, the memory system. When she got back to NYU, she started an undergrad class in which exercise was a requirement. Do you think exercise in the undergrads improved performance on memory tasks? Stay tuned for the answer. Before we start, I wanted to mention a couple other things. First, please go to our website, brainpodcast.com. Producer Lauren has made some very entertaining artwork that corresponds to each episode. Also, we post bonus content such as research articles and YouTube clips from the scientists we interview. And if you like what we're doing here, please rate us on iTunes and share our podcast to your friends and family. All right, enough of that. Perk up your cochlea. It's time for the interview. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Um, you're a memory researcher, so could you start off by telling us what are the different forms of memory? So, yeah, um, the main categories of memory are short-term memory and long-term memory within the forms of memory that, you know, um, I usually work with. There's habit memory, but when you think about memory, you think about um, memory for facts and events, which is also defined as declarative memory. And that's the form, that's a really special form of memory that you really don't want to lose. And so that's, that's what people really think about when they think about memory. When the brain is changing, changes a lot in response to the environment and whatnot. What do we call that and what do we know about um, what is happening in the brain sort of generally? Yeah. And how is that related to memory? So that is actually that what you just referred to is called brain plasticity and is the reason why I became a neuroscientist because I was so fascinated with this idea that not only does the brain help define our personalities and how we see the world and feel the world and hear the world, but it can change in response to to our experiences. And um, that made me think, well, that means I can change my own brain if I if I do that. And how does that work? And can I can I what if I want to change it in a particular way? Can I do that? And those were the questions that really fascinated me as a freshman at UC Berkeley when I decided I wanted to become a neuroscientist. And we now know there are so many different ways that, you know, just, just looking at something can can change your brain a little bit. Any memory forming 
changes your brain. And so that's one of the reasons that I went into a specialty of memory, because this is a form of plasticity that happens almost every minute of every day, the things that you remember for short term or, or long term. And the long term memories, of course, we think are changing more a sub substantive aspects of the morphology of, of your brain. But yeah, there's so many different ways that that plasticity happens that um, that's one of the things that I think is most fascinating about neuroscience. What do we know about the difference between how memories are formed between humans and animals? and the different models, and what have you studied in regards to those? Yeah, so I have studied memory in, in animals um, that really, I think, was a wonderful way to move forward from probably the most famous amnesic patient that has ever been studied, who is patient HM, and we now know his name is Henry Mollison, um, studied for over 40 years by first Brenda Milner and then Sue Corkin and, and their colleagues. And that was the game changer in our understanding of memory because this patient became amnesic after undergoing an experimental surgery to try and alleviate his epilepsy. Now, way back in the early 50s, when he was he was, had this terrible ep epilepsy, we knew that taking out one side of the brain's hippocampus, which is located deep in the temporal lobe, could help alleviate epilepsy. But his epilepsy was so severe, they decided to do what they called, quote, a frankly experimental procedure and take out both because they didn't know what, was the, what the effect was. Well, they did take out both. And the good news is that his epilepsy definitely decreased. But the horrible news, the tragic news, is that he became densely amnesic. So that, that started the modern study of memory, but it ended any of these experimental surgeries, obviously. You can't, can't do that anymore. And that's when the animal models came in. They became so valuable to be able to then say, okay, well, we know this general area is important for memory. Which subdivision of the area is important? What if I take out only part of it? Can it, uh, what does that do? And you're able to do these kinds of systematic studies in, in animal models, which, which I did as a graduate student. And um, they really moved us forward from we think this general area is is important, um, and we think it's the hippocampus, but we're absolutely we're not really sure. To now we know that the key areas include the hippocampus um, and their anatomically related cortical areas, including the anterior and perirhinal and parahippocampal cortices. So the only reason I'm able to say that is because of the animal models and the animal work that. Um, that I and, and many others did to, to uh, move forward from, from the striking finding and tragic finding in patient HM. So it's pretty easy to imagine what a memory task would look like in a human. Ask, give them a list of words and ask them what they remember or pictures or, or whatnot. What does a memory task look like uh, for an animal? Well, there's lots of different ways to test uh, animal memory, and some of them look quite similar to the ways that um, humans are tested. So, for example, in animals, you can give them a list of different objects, not a list, but a sequence of different objects, and you can reward, put put a little reward under the object so they have to displace it, and, and then they get the reward. And then later, you can give them the same object and a novel object, 
and um, ask which object do they pay more attention to and it turns out that if they've seen it before it's boring they don't want to look at it and so you can measure their level of recognition of that object simply by looking at how much they, time they spend with that object so you know if I've seen your face over and over and over and over I, I don't I'm not really interested in looking at your face anymore but if you're new then I really want to look at your face so there's a wonderful way and and um, very kind of ethologically relevant way to be able to look at the same form of memory in animals. Could you tell us some of the specific questions that you asked early on in your work and sort of the contributions or the things that you discovered early in your career? So um, the early studies were really a direct follow-up from those studies in, in the amnesic patient HM where we were trying to figure out so there was a big mystery and the, the science is a series of of mystery questions that we try our best as scientists to solve and the mystery that i got involved with was the question of what parts of the medial temporal lobe were critical for causing the the really profound memory deficit in patient hm and there were two camps when I got to graduate school. One camp said the reason why HM had such a bad memory impairment was that he had damage to both the hippocampus and another structure right next to the hippocampus called the amygdala, which was true. He definitely had damage to both structures. And one line of research said, well, that's what you need. It's this concomitant damage. Another line of research said, I'm not sure the amygdala is that important for this form of memory that is so devastated in patient HM, this declarative memory that I talked about, the memories for facts and events. And so they set about trying to do very, very systematic and circumscribed lesions of the amygdala alone and asking, if it's important, then you should see some impairment from very selective amygdala lesions. And when they did that, they found no impairment at all. Not only that, they added this very circumscribed amygdala lesion to a hippocampal lesion and said, does it, does it make it worse? And the answer was no. So that was really exciting. That was happening right when I got to graduate school. So, so then the question was, great, it's not the amygdala, but what is it? Because damage to the hippocampus was causing a, a mild memory impairment. It certainly wasn't the devastating memory impairment that you saw in patient HM. So then, then we had another mystery. So it wasn't, first it was a mystery of is it the amygdala or is not, is it not the amygdala? The answer was it was not the amygdala. But then what was, what else could there be? They had no other candidates until an anatomist that I worked with, David Amaral, took a close look at some of the sections through the brains of, of animals that had been uh, tested in these, these experiments. And he said, gee, there's a lot of damage to the cortex surrounding these structures. I wonder what that cortex is doing. And so that's when I said, I'll look at that. And because um, I came from an anatomy lab and I loved anatomy. And um, so I literally had to go back and play Santiago Romoni Cajal, who's a very uh, well-known neuroanatomist, kind of the father of neuroscience, and go back to the early studies of Broadman who published a seminal work in 1909, subdividing the brain into all these different areas. And um, I learned that Broadman didn't do a very good job in these areas that we were looking at. They were 
inconsistent across species. It was a mess down there. And he got the big ones right. And, and everybody uses Broadman's areas to define. But that doesn't mean he was perfect in all these different areas. So it was a mess. And I had to relook at them myself and recategorize them myself. And um, it turns out that these cortical areas that kind of fell through the cracks in early designations of cortex. I think people kind of got tired. They started with the top, and by the time they got to the very bottom, they're just like, oh, it's like whatever. I'm cleaning my house. Exactly. You know? At first, it's like, oh, the kitchen's great, but yeah. then get to the bathroom. Right, yeah. yeah, exactly. So so that cortex was like the bathroom, and it, it yeah. didn't get a lot of attention. But it turned out for memory to be absolutely critical. So what I was able to do was first look at the just the cellular structure and and um, designate you know what what looks like it goes together, and then not only that that's not good enough. You want to look at the connections. Does do the connections of those areas make sense? And once we started looking at the connections, it became so clear that these were the key areas feeding in, in a in 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 a dramatic way into the hippocampus itself. Um, and so clearly, anatomically, they were strongly related. And then the other work I did was to look at, well, if they're anatomically related, then maybe we can do the lesion. So early studies did amygdala and hippocampal lesions. And the studies that we did were hippocampus plus the surrounding cortex lesion. That should cause a severe deficit. Actually, we only did the surrounding cortex alone. And with that lesion alone, we got a devastating memory impairment, which was the answer to what the mystery of what was causing the impairment. It wasn't hippocampus plus amygdala. It was hippocampus and its anatomically related cortical structures. So that was, that was really exciting to be able to participate in. Yeah, I wonder if you can imagine, so you're sort of taking out the inputs, the major inputs from the cortex into the hippocampus, could you just keep going back sort of anatomically, you know, structurally? And is there a point where maybe a sensory memory area overlap where you're not knocking out memories anymore or something? Yeah. Or what do you think about that, the sort of anatomical chain yeah. leading into the hippocampus? Well, that's a great question because I think that is that is a strategy that we used. And we didn't have to go back very far to hit a sensory area, which which when damaged would cause a modality specific um, impairment, but not a modality general impairment. And we knew from patient HM that, that he was impaired on all kinds of information. He was, he couldn't remember visual stuff. He couldn't remember auditory stuff. He couldn't remember um, somatosensory or olfactory stuff. It, that was kind of one of the defining features. And um, it made sense with the anatomy because these cortical areas that I identified, we showed that they got inputs from all sensory modalities. But once you went one step back, you started getting um, only vision, for example. And that was not consistent with the idea of that, that this area would be contributing to memory, but it would be the input for all the sensory input into these memory areas. So um, that all started to make sense, and we were absolutely paying attention to those anatomical kind of landmarks. So as you continued on and uh, started your uh, professorship, what, what line of research did you open up there, and uh, what questions did you ask? So the next logical question after the anatomy is, you can do a lot of guessing with anatomy. It, it shows, what I loved about anatomy is that it showed the real 
neuron to neuron connections. It, that was true. That was a true result. But it didn't tell me anything about function. I could guess all day about what that function could be. And I could make general uh, conclusions that an area that did not receive somatosensory input would li likely not be a somatosensory area. And I was, I, I was confident in that. But I wanted to know what the perirunal cortex and the perihippocampal cortex did. And I wanted to know whether these areas were simply relay stations, like dumb relay stations, or they did something unique in their memory capacity, which is what I assumed they did, but I didn't have direct evidence for that. And so the only way to get that direct evidence was to do um, recording studies in these areas and record the individual neurons as animals were performing various memory demanding tasks and tease apart what a perirunal cortex neuron would do versus a hippocampal neuron versus an enteronal neuron and and try and plot out what these what the kind of memory functions of these areas were and that was the only tool that i had to to really be able to get at that and so that's been a focus of my work at nyu and what uh, what have you found out? What have you discovered by doing these recording studies? So I found out the big, uh, the big overall um, take-home message is that depending on the task that you want the animal to do, these different medial temporal lobe areas, they're complicated areas, right? They can either work very, very similar with each other, kind of in parallel. They're all doing the same thing. So I record in each one of them on the same task, and they all do pretty much the same thing. Or if I switch to another task, they can really kind of diversify and do quite distinct things. And so it just reminds me of the complexity of these medial temporal lobe areas and um, that it's not a one theory, the hippocampus isn't one theory fits, fits all, it really is. It really depends on the exact task that is at hand. And these areas are flexible and dynamic and can either, um, depending on whether it's an encoding task or an associative learning task, can be similar, or um, a task that I've used um, recently, uh, a temporal order discrimination task, shows very different responses across all the medial temporal lobe areas that, that we recorded from, that my postdoc, Yuji Naya, recorded from four different areas and very, very different um, patterns that we were able to kind of uh, pull together the, the sequence of how these areas may be pulling together a temporal order memory. So do you think this sort of task-dependent uh, hippocampal flexibility is a feature of the hippocampus? Is it maybe an important feature of it? And what does that mean for, for you when you, when we study it, you know? I mean, I think that it's not, it's, it's all task dependent within the realm of kinds of tasks that we already knew, suspected that the hippocampus does. And it's all about how are you going to frame the theory? And that's, that's the big question. There are big fights in the literature now. You know, I think it's all doing one thing. You know, I think it's, this one is only doing this and that structure is only doing that. And what I try and argue in my recent review papers is that it, both of you, let's all live together in harmony. You're both right, depending on um, the situation. So yes, it's true that in certain situations, we get very similar patterns across these di different medial temporal lobe structures in single unit physiology, where you can really tell that for sure. But in other tasks, you get very different patterns. It's not necessarily 
in the way that has been described as, um, so one theory says that the periorontal cortex is only for familiarity and the hippocampus is important for recollection. Well, I saw very different responses in a timing task where the hippocampus only cared about relative time. Did you, did one stimulus come before another stimulus and didn't care about the identity of the stimulus. Um, and it was the periorontal cortex that kind of put together both the identity and the relative timing of it. So I, I, I see those data and I say we still have a lot to learn to come up with the true theory that can, that could explain all of the, you know, the beautiful work being done. There's this beautiful work being done in the hippocampus and we're still all working and, and kind of butting heads on how do you best summarize that. Do you have uh, ongoing studies that are uh, asking these basic hippocampal function questions? Yes. Um, mm -hmm. what, what sort of questions are you asking? In these so um, what we're asking now is, um, um, so we spent the first 10 or 15 years in my lab focusing on structures within the medial temporal lobe, and that was very fruitful, and we got a good handle on that. But we know that the medial temporal lobe doesn't work in a vacuum. It is strongly interconnected with other higher cognitive and memory-related areas, including the prefrontal cortex and the striatum. And so two out of the three main studies that we're doing, one of them is looking at prefrontal hippocampal interconnections and what happens during a timing, a temporal order memory task. Um, and being able to record simultaneously in both these structures and look at these interactions. And the other uh, study looks at interactions between the striatum and the medial temporal lobe during a motor associative learning task. Again, to start to look at how the hippocampus plays with the rest of the brain. And do you think that looking at multiple brain regions at once is, is sort of key, maybe a key component of answering these questions, sort of how they play together, how they, yeah. how they function together. I think it's an absolutely critical next step because um, the brain is so complex and I could have easily stayed in my very familiar medial temporal lobe and only look at my familiar medial temporal lobe task. But I knew that to really get at the big questions, you cannot, you cannot stay in this bubble and you have to get a feeling for what, how, how the brain, how the medial temporal lobe is, is, um, communicating. And um, I think that is, I think many people in our field are moving towards those questions. And those are the most exciting questions kind of on the horizon. Could you uh, give us an overview of how you got interested in exercise and memory function and sort of what your journey has been down that path of research? So um, I got interested in exercise actually um, on a river rafting trip in South America in Peru. And I went on this trip, and it turns out there was a whole bunch of triathletes on this trip. And I was by far the weakest person on the whole trip, and it was so depressing. And it's like, you know, I was okay, but I was They're really just like paddling weak. for hours and yeah. hours, and you're just like, <laughs> I could I could paddle, but when it really came, I really um, felt weak was... Um, Every night we'd choose this, you know, um, camping spot and we'd have to make a fire line and, and pull all our bags out from the boat all the way up onto the shore. And so we'd all stand there and there were hundred pound bags that we were pulling out. 
And so not that everybody could lift a hundred pound bags, but every night these two big guys would get on either side of me to help me pretend like I was lifting the hundred pound. They were very, very sweet. And, um, but I was like, okay, I get it. I'm, I'm really weak. And so when I got back from that trip, which was so fun, I had a great time, despite the fact I had this realization, I'm weak. I have to get to the gym. And I walked to the gym and I signed up for a trainer and I started going regularly. It's like, that was the the aha moment I needed to really get in shape. And it took, uh, you know, a couple, a year, year and a half. And I really got addicted to it. And I found this class that I loved um, called Intensati. And it, it combined physical movements from kickboxing and dance and yoga and um, martial arts with positive spoken affirmations. And so it took a lot of coordination. There was a lot of dance associated with it. And you had to yell out, positive affirmations like I am strong now and I believe I will succeed, which sounds completely idiotic, but it's actually really empowering when you actually do it with a whole class of sweaty New Yorkers. It's great. And I felt, um, and I really got hooked on that class. And um, it was because of that class that I started to realize that when I did do exercise regularly, I could write better. And that was the thing that I first noticed in myself, that my writing, my grant writing got significantly better when I and this wasn't after one day, it was after a year of getting more and more regular. And um, it was that observation that kind of pushed me on the path to start to look at this in my science lab, because I'm, I'm a scientist that studies memory, but I'm a scientist and I should be able to study whatever I want. And so it was kind of a, it was a really exciting intellectual challenge. Can I break out of my memory studies and, and do something very different and study cognitive effects of exercise in humans and look at frontal lobe functions because that I was certainly noticing that and kind of try and reinvent at least part of my lab um, for some of these questions that I was looking at. What sort of studies did you do to ask those questions and yeah. what have you uh, learned from yeah. those so studies? The first way I looked at this is it was, it was more like a science hobby and I wanted to uh, look at, I wanted to learn the literature myself because I found it so fascinating. And so I decided to teach a new undergraduate course called Can Exercise Change the Brain? Because that's the best way to learn a new field is to teach undergraduates about it. And so um, I was going to review the whole literature about animals and the effects of exercise in animals as well as what we knew in humans. But I decided I want to do something a little bit different. And I was going to the gym very regularly anyway. And I decided I wanted to bring exercise into the classroom. So I got actually certified to become a group fitness instructor in order to teach this new class and, and encouraged, actually I forced the students to do an hour of exercise, followed by an hour and a half lecture on the effects of exercise on the brain. And so um, it was a really exciting uh, class to be able to to bring. It shifted the the atmosphere in the classroom uh, immeasurably when you actually bring exercise into the classroom. And it really got them much more interactive. And um, I have to say they, they came up with their, by the end of the class, they had to come up with a brand new experiment, experimental proposal related to any of the topics that we had t studied. And I had these great, very inventive kinds of um, studies that covered everything from animal models to humans to looking at Parkinson's patients. And, and they researched the literature in a really engaged way. So, so it was great. But not only that, I tested these students at the beginning and at the end of the semester to ask whether that increased aerobic ex exercise that I gave them 
made any cognitive difference. And we did find significant improvements in reaction time on uh, a test that we suspected would be sensitive to, to exercise. And that was like the first little bug that made me think, oh, that's really cool. Maybe, maybe I should study this more. Since that time, I've looked at the effects of what we call acute aerobic exercise. So just an hour, what happens when you go to the gym for an hour and looked at uh, um, that effect in healthy young college students and found significant improvements in frontal lobe functions. And uh, we've looked at the effects of three months, twice a week um, exercise in elderly lifelong drug addicts, where sadly, I taught a lot of those classes and I saw the amazing improvement in just the physical ability of, of the students, but it's hard to get drug addicts to come to class regularly, and we had a difficult time. So in the end, we didn't have enough subjects to make a conclusion, but I'm convinced that drug addiction could be benefited by, by exercise. And then um, our last study uh, that we just published was the effects of aerobic exercise on traumatic brain injury, finding significant improvements on four measures of quality of life and depressive indices. So that was really exciting, and um, future studies are going to follow those, those directions. Is there sort of new technologies on the horizon that you think could impact your research and uh, answer questions maybe that you haven't been able to address yet? Yeah, um, absolutely. There's lots and lots of questions. I, I feel like I've just got in, I'm like a baby researcher in this area. So there's so many fascinating questions. And I think that there are two main areas that I would like to pursue that I think are most exciting. One is using the most, um, um, kind of cutting edge fMRI technology, including DTI and all these measures to, to look at, um, and, and connectivity measures to see um, the, the networks that get affected in exercise. But the one I'm most interested in is um, the interaction between changes in brain activity, brain plasticity with exercise, and um, genetic components, and which alleles do you carry, and are there particular allele carriers that are not benefiting from exercise, or those that benefit the most. And I think that would be fascinating, because one of my goals is to try and use aerobic exercise as a tool to improve um, education in the United States. And I don't expect all of my faculty colleagues to go out and, and, and you know, get trained to be an aerobics instructor, but I um, uh, instead, I, I, um, I envision something where we can collaborate with all the physical ed classes that are already in the university, but give students recommendations. So if you need to get prepped for a particular class or a particular, you know, uh, um, test, what is the best prescription of exercise that I can give you? And um, can I show you that it works with, you know, my... 5,000 students at NYU. Um, so those are, those are on the horizon as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was thinking, as you were describing the effects of exercise on learning, we have in elementary school, we have recesses. There's maybe a PE class, I guess, in junior high and high school, but it comes at maybe different intervals in the day. Yeah. And I'm not sure, you know, how, maybe people aren't getting enough vigorous of, a, of an experience. Um, you're sort of imagining maybe we can have a prescription for right yeah right that that you I mean clearly there was I mean it's it's the Greeks and Romans that told us how important physical activity was to our intellectual life and we used to know that in the 50s when PE was much more integrated not that they knew exactly what they do but they knew it was important 
but today we have really lost that and very few, I think it's 30% of kids get the recommended amount of a physical exercise and instead they're trying to jam all of the, you know, pre-SAT tests um, with no break for exercise, which they think is great, but they're actually shooting themselves or shooting the kids in the foot. Um, I think we need a much more neuroscience-based and reasoned approach to combining physical activity um, with learning that will benefit both the mind and the body. Are there any sort of uh, projects or initiative maybe outside of neuroscience that you're working on, uh, maybe professionally involved with? Or? Yes. Um, so I'm very involved with various forms of storytelling. I actually have a book coming out in April oh, called awesome. um, Happy Brain, Happy Life. It's being published by HarperCollins. I also have been active in giving different talks with the Moth Radio Hour, and I have a Story Collider session coming up in November, which has been great fun, and I love doing those kinds of stories. And in fact, my next undergraduate class at NYU that I'm teaching is going to be a science storytelling class. I'm going to bring, I'm going to coach them on the science, and I have a producer that I've been working with that will help them with the storytelling aspect. I would love to take that class. <laughs> I wish, uh, wish I was an NYU student now. Uh, is there anything else that maybe you uh, you you have time for? You know, it sounds like it's already a very full and busy life. Yeah, I have to say that I've taken, I've always um, been a huge fan of musicals. And I've always wanted to sing, but I've never, ever sung. And so I'm taking a jazz vocal workshop once a week now, and that's really fun. And yeah, I've learned that, that the voice is like a muscle. And if you practice, you can actually sing better. And um, it's great for storytelling and lecturing because being able to tell a story with your voice in, in a song situation is very helpful for just presence as you're giving a talk and um and it's really fun so yeah that's my hobby cue up some music uh Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding <laughs> a good one yeah <laughs> great uh, uh thanks for sitting down and chatting with us it was fun right. yeah thank you very much appreciate great. it thanks for listening to this episode of brain matters we'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening for more information about the science you heard today please visit us at brainpodcast.com see you next time on brain matters